Please open your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 3. We're going to continue our reading uh, on page 688 in the church Bibles, the pew Bibles here. Page 688. I'm going to pick up the reading back at uh, chapter 3 and verse 12. Youths oppress my people. Women rule over them. O my people, your guides lead you astray. They turn you from the path. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The Lord says, The women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day, the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and the headbands, the crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and ankle chains and sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes and the capes and the cloaks, the purses and mirrors and the linen garments and tiaras and shawls. Instead of fragrance, there will be stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword. Your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn. Destitute, she will sit on the ground. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, We will eat our own food and provide our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. This is God's word. Please keep your Bibles open and let's pray as we come to consider it together. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. 
For this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Heavenly Father, please enable us through the work of your Holy Spirit to have humble, repentant hearts that tremble at your word so that we may trust and obey you in our lives. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I wonder, what is your vision of the future? What's your vision of the future for yourself and for this world? There are those who are optimistic about the future. Um, and if you want to view worldviews in terms of sci-fi, it would be those who like Star Trek. There's the Star Trek view of the universe, which is kind of man uh, just perfects himself. He gets better and better through technology. Um, we, we, the future's so bright, you're going to have to wear shades, and uh, all will be well. We'll just get better and better. John F. Kennedy uh, famously said this. Put the quote up. Our problems are man-made. Therefore, they may be solved by man. And man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human, human destiny is beyond human beings. So said the President of the United States. Very bold words, aren't they? Very bold words. Well, there's the uh, optimistic view of the future, but then there's also a pessimistic of the future. And if you're, uh, I say, your sci-fi worldview is, is more pessimistic, then you're into films like The Matrix or The Terminator, where the future is that we create this technology, and this technology finally wakes up. It's smarter than the human beings, and it takes us over and uses us. Uh, Yogi Berra, uh, a uh, U.S. baseball player and coach, summed up this sort of future when he, when he said uh, these words, the future ain't what it used to be. And George Orwell in 1949 wrote the book 1984 and sort of prophetically spoke of a day where there would be a sort of a totalitarian state in Britain where there would be a uh, big brother watching us a TV eye that would watch us in every home, a video camera on every street that would mark everything we do. Not too far off. Thankfully, not all the way there, but we have to be constantly vigilant. What's your vision of the future? For your own life? For the world? What will be the decisive factor? Will it be... Um, an ecological matter. I mean, we've got films like The Day After Tomorrow where, uh, strangely, because of global warming, we're going to have a new, uh, a new ice age. I never quite understood that about the film. Or, or maybe some say, actually, the great battles of the future will be battles over water. And Scotland will be very rich in that day. Or will it be... Uh, a pessimistic future where we're wiped out by some contagion, as in the uh, recent film where some infectious disease will wipe out sort of humanity. What will the future be like? What will decide it? Well, I want you to look at what Isaiah says about the future. Let me remind you what uh, we looked at last week in chapter 1, verse 1. Isaiah writing sort of uh, in the 8th century before Christ came, 
he, he stands up and preaches this message, and it was written down for us, Isaiah 1.1. This is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and kings of Judah. Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord and a vision of what was going to happen. And if you look at verse 2, the significance of of, of his words are, 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 are heavenly and, and affect the whole earth. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah was one to tell us this. Actually, do you know what will be the decisive factor of the future? You need to look at Judah. You need to look at the city of Jerusalem. If you want to see what is going to happen in the future, heavens, earth, look at what I am going to teach you and show you from the Lord concerning the events of Judah and Jerusalem. Watch, because the future will be determined here. It's a bold claim, isn't it? And my friends, if you've not taken into account the message of Isaiah in, in planning for your future, can I just tell you from, from God's word here, you're making some very foolish mistakes. And so we would do well to listen to what Isaiah has to say. We, we're going to look at three chapters this morning, so it's going to be a fly-by look. And there's a lot of content, but there's three major sections that we want to consider here. And the first section is about the mountain of the Lord in, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days. Do you notice that time marker? He's talking about things uh, future to him, and I believe still uh, in part future to us. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Do you see Isaiah's vision of the future? It is of all the nations recognizing that the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, is the true King of the earth and the heavens. He's prophesying a day when all the nations wake up to the fact that there is only one true God who is King over all things, and they will recognize that by flocking to Jerusalem. Mountains were considered to be, uh, by the pagan nations, the places where a man met with God as sort of the high point. And, and Isaiah says, well, there is a day coming when the mountain of the Lord will be greater than all other mountaintops. He'll be viewed as supreme. And there would be a day when people would go to God's temple in Jerusalem, perched on the hillside, when that would be lifted up the temple will be so lifted up that the nations will stream to it. Look at verse 3. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He, God, will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. That's the significance of hearing from the Lord, isn't it? To teach us His ways so that we can walk in His paths. The Lord will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And see, God's people are, are, are going to be sort of like a lighthouse. 
a lighthouse that uh, as they obey the Lord, there'll be a light that shines out to the nations and the nations will be drawn to come and acknowledge the true and living God. And what will be the result of this? Well, nothing less than world peace. Look at verse 4. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. World peace forever. Uh, They'll not need to learn war anymore. Weapons will become garden tools. Soldiers will become farmers and enjoy the fruits of the land, the sort of return of the blessings of the Garden of Eden. And I would imagine there's many a military family that sort of uh, would hear words like this and ache for it as another Christmas approaches and the possibility of their loved ones still not being with them. What a bright and glorious vision of the future. Does it not make your heart ache for it? This is the world as we want it, is it not? A world of peace, of abundance. And how does it come about? Well, it comes about when the nations recognize that the Lord God alone is king. All the blessings of this world are are, are recognized and experienced as we submit to the kingship of God, submit under his rule, and recognize uh, the blessing of that. But do you see also that this future vision uh, is, is something that's to result in a, in, a, in a response in the present. Look at verse 5. In the light of that future, Isaiah says, Come, come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's what the future will be. All the nations will one day recognize Yahweh as king. So come, O Judah, let's walk in the light of the Lord. Now, why does he have to call them to do that? Because in Isaiah's day, so 700 plus years before Christ, they were doing the exact opposite. The exact opposite. They were not walking in the light of the Lord. They were walking away from the Lord into the darkness. And they were becoming indistinguishable from the nations around them. Rather than being a lighthouse, the light was off. And they were just like the nations around them. And so Isaiah abruptly says this to God in verse 6. You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. Oh God, you have abandoned the house of your people. And so he warns them. He warns his people in his day that they are facing the day of the Lord. Which is what you've got from 2.6 to 4.1. And for us as Christians here today, a part of God's new covenant people, his church, we should be chastened to see what was the evidence of their rebellion. Because what we see here is that their focus was not on God and his word, but instead it was on man-made wisdom. Look at verse 6. They were full of superstitions from the east. They practiced divination, occult like the Philistines, and clasp hands with pagans. Of course, this is what the world applauds, doesn't it, today? No one faith has the truth. Let's be tolerant. Uh, they, they, uh, 
they sit back and uh, observe the whole elephant and uh, see us religious people groping around as blind men just feeling the leg of the elephant and saying, oh, God is like this. And then someone feels the trunk and he's like that. And, oh, you, 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 you know, they say, well, you've just got parts of the truth. And we, we can just tell you that actually it's all the same. All the same. Just, just, just adopt uh, the, the spiritualities of the world. You need to have interfaith dialogue. You need to listen. You need to not, not be so intolerant. This is the wisdom of the world, isn't it? And that's exactly what marks those who are in rebellion against God in the Bible. They just go looking to absorb all the, the teachings that are out there in the world, influenced by it. Secondly, it's evidenced by man-made security in verse 7. Looking for security in the world's wealth. Their land is full of silver and gold. And there is no end to their treasures. Remember, Isaiah was prophesying at a time when, when Judah was doing pretty well. There was a lot of prosperity. And he looks around and sees people uh, with big bank balances. People whose focus is really upon their trade and upon their financial reserves. I did find it quite ironic when I lived in America that the national motto, In God We Trust, is, is printed on the $20 bill. It was kind of ambiguous. In God we trust, on the money. Yeah, which God? Which God? And as we look at our culture today and see what a tremendous panic and, uh, and flap there is about the euro crisis and the potential of a double-dip recession, and that's all that fills the papers, does that not tell us where our trust is as a nation? Where our dependence is? We, we rely on our wealth. Our God is our money. And their security was also in, in military might. Look, 7b. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Of course, this is the best military equipment of the day. That's where their confidence is, is in their military might. Man-made wisdom, man-made security, and man-made worship. Verse 8. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. Andrew McCabe was telling me last week uh, of uh, going to have a meal with uh, a man he's known for many years, and uh, this man is a Hindu, and in his house there is every sort of Hindu god. He had pretty much all the gods covered. He had them had, had uh, idols to all the gods in his house. And of course, one of the things that Andrew's been preaching in India is the foolishness of idolatry. These idols, made by human fingers, how foolish it is to treat them as God and to bow to them and wake to them and feed them and care for them as if they're gods. How foolish to worship things that you've made with your hands. And of course, this is not just a, a, an issue in sort of the third world. Uh, we have our same Western version of it, don't we? We idolize what we make with our fingers. 
We idolize our stuff. We live for that better car. Uh, I, I look out my door and my neighbor is, is constantly waxing his Beamer. It's a perfectly kept BMW. He loves it. He loves it. He strokes it. It's, it's. We worship what we make with our fingers. What other men have made with their fingers. We have people who... Uh, whose lives are being absolutely absorbed and addicted to the worship of human flesh through pornography, clicking away with their mouses, investing their money and their time in, in, the, in the worship of, 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 of some imaginary woman's body, created by some dubious photographer or video maker. People worship what is made with their hands, how foolish, how foolish to be living like that. Now, my friends, that's what mankind in rebellion against God does. Instead of worshiping the creator, we worship the, the, the creation and the things that we create within it. That's what impresses us. And there is no surprise when the world is like that. The horror of what Isaiah is pointing out is when God's people act just like the world and end up worshipping exactly the same stuff as the world is worshipping. That is the horror of what Isaiah is pointing out when God's people end up worshipping exactly the same things, bowing down to idols made with their own little pinkies. That's the tragedy here. How tragic when God's people trade trust in the true and living God for the false promises of this world. And so Isaiah's comment is there in verse 9. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled. Do not forgive them, Isaiah says. When God's children who should know better are the same as or even worse in the world, it is unforgivable. And if they stay in that rejection, Isaiah says, don't forgive them, he cries out to God. And so my Christian friends, can I just ask today, what are we trusting in? What are we trusting in? Really? Obviously, it's Sunday and we're going to sing God's praises, but when we go out in the rest of the week, what are we truly trusting in? Are we really just trusting in ourselves? Are we trusting in our money? Our pensions pot? Our portfolio? Are we trusting in our position? Are we trusting in our health? What is it that we really lean on and depend upon? Or as a church, what, what are we truly trusting in? Is it our strategies? Is it our buildings? Is it our methods? Is it our music? Is it uh, our bank balance? What is it that we are really leaning upon? Now, why are we so tempted to follow the strategies of the world? Why are we so impressed by men and human achievements? And I think there's two reasons for this. Firstly, we are seduced by the splendor of the world. Go visit Canary Wharf in London. I mean, for me, just walking down the streets on George Street, these incredibly expensive clothes shops, who buys these clothes? I mean, I look at the prices, I go, are you joking? You could buy... Clearly, there's money. There's money out there. People who like to buy the best. Wow, wouldn't it be nice to live with the finer things? 
Go look at Canary Wharf, the power of money. Go to New York, go to Hong Kong. Look at these skyscrapers. Oh, they speak of the wonders of uh, civil engineering and construction, but they also speak of the pride and hubris of humanity, do they not? Look at me! Look at us! We can stick this in the ground. And we have offices on the 23rd to the 24th floor. Or go to Westminster. Um, I've had the privilege of going to Washington, D.C. and going in the Capitol building. And just that smell of old leather and that look of power. Walk around the White House. I've had a look around the east wing of the White House. And, uh, well, there's power. It is so seductive. Go to the movies. Watch the stars show how you can make sense of life apart from God. Flick through the glossy magazines and see the beautiful people, the uber-rich people. It's very seductive. This world that rejects God can look so attractive and permanent, and it looks like it will never end. Vanity Fair says, trust me, you can take charge of your destiny. You can be your own master. The only person who really matters is yourself. Define your own reality. That's the world around us. And all that just boils down simply to the arrogance and pride of man. And the danger is we get seduced by the splendor of the world. I do. We get seduced by it. And the other reason why is that we have lost sight of the splendor of God's majesty. That's why we're so dazzled by the world. It's like looking at a full moon in the night. You think, oh, that's amazing compared to the sun in the middle of the day. That looks so bright because we've forgotten what the sun looks like and it's all its brilliance. We're dazzled by the world because we've forgotten about the splendor and the glory of God's majesty. See, the main problem that we face and the world faces when we think that we are the kings of the universe is that sooner or later we'll discover that we are not. We will be confronted by the person who is. The Lord God is king, and we will see his glory. That's what Isaiah promises the people of Judah and Jerusalem. He refers to it as the day of the Lord. It's the day where God proves unmistakably that we as human beings are not in charge and that he alone is. And my friends, today to plan a future without regard to the Holy One of Israel, without regard to God, is utterly foolish. And I, and I urge you to examine these verses with me. I don't even thought, well, I'd, I, you know, if God would reveal himself to me, I'd believe in him. I, if, I, if only I could see God, and we'd, we'd get on great, God and I. What would it be like to see the glory of the Lord? What would it be like? Oh, my friends, it would be devastating to our ego. It would be devastating to our pride. The glory of the Lord would crush us, crush our pride all the way down. It would bring us so low that we'd want to crawl underground and disappear. That's what it says. Look at 2 verse 10. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. 
What would we like to see the splendor of God's majesty? My friends, if we are those who are proud and haughty and for ourselves and self-defining our lives, it will be a day of dread. That's what Isaiah is saying. A day of dread to see the splendor of his majesty. Verse 11, the eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. Verse 17, the arrogance of man will be brought low, the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will totally disappear. Men will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, men will throw away to the rodents and bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made to worship. They'll flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. I don't know where those words are beginning to impress themselves upon us. The reality, the seriousness of the day when God comes to judge the proud and the haughty. The reality will be far worse. Now Judah will, uh, would, would eventually get the taste of this as first of all the Assyrian nation came down and swept from the north down through the, all of, of Judea and nearly take Jerusalem but then not take it. And then later when the Babylonians came down and destroyed and took the people away. And as terrible as those events were of the judgment and the exile, those events will not compare to the final day of God's judgment, which is yet to come. In the book of Revelation, chapter 6, these very words are taken up as one of the seals is opened. The sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. It takes up this very imagery and says this, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This speaks of the day when the Lord Jesus returns. Not as the lowly, humble servant, but as the great, victorious king. And all those who proudly set themselves up against him will be begging for the mountains to crush them and save them from the wrath of the Lamb. The great day of the wrath has come. Who can stand? Two things happen on the day of the Lord. Mankind will be humbled, and God alone will be exalted. God alone will be exalted. Now, why does Isaiah speak these words? He speaks these words because he lovingly is calling on them to repent. He's warning them of what will come with their pride and their idolatry. 
And he's urging them to repent. Look at verse 22 of uh, chapter 2 of Isaiah. Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? This is how they are to respond. Stop trusting in men. He's just got breath up his nostrils. Of what account is he? At the end of the day, my friend, human beings are totally dependent. Adam was dead until God breathed life into him, and God can choose that we stop breathing at any moment that he wishes. Any moment. And we've had enough evidence uh, in the last few years, have we not, of, of how the arrogance of man is worth nothing in the day of natural disaster. The impact of Hurricane Katrina over New Orleans. The impact of a tsunami over Japan. And all our finest technology brought to an absolute brink of nuclear breakdown, of, of great damage by a, a, a mighty wave. And that is the impact of the natural world. And we're talking about the God who creates the cosmos. Why do we pay such account to man in whom has just got breath in his nostrils? Think about Steve Jobs, the, uh, one of the founders of, of Apple. One of the things that struck me about his death was that with all his brilliance and with all his wealth as a billionaire, he could not save his life from cancer. He could not. If this is the future of proud humanity, utterly humbled and brought low, here's the question. Why do God's people obsess so much and pay so much attention to mere men in the world? Why are we seduced by the splendor of the world? when God alone will be exalted in that day. Stop trusting in man who's just got breath up his nose for a short time. Now we don't have time to look at all the details in chapter 3. But in a sense, Isaiah develops his message of the foolishness of trusting in man you see, if, if in Jerusalem and Judea in his day, they were basically trusting in man's wisdom, in uh, man's um, security and man's worship, then the judgment of God is that he's going to remove the men on which they rely. 3.1 See now, the Lord, the Lord Almighty is about to take from Jerusalem and Judea both supply and support, all supplies of food, all supplies of water, and then he's going to take all the men in whom they're actually relying, the hero, the warrior, the judge, the prophet, the captain of 50, and the man of rank. They're all going to be taken away. And in their place, there will just be boys left to rule over, which is always a terrible sign of judgment when boys are ruling. See, the tragedy of Isaiah's day is that they were not walking in the light of the Lord. They were walking away from the Lord into the darkness. And they were proud of their sin. God's people were becoming proud of their sin. Look at verse 9, 3 verse 9. 
The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. What a tragedy when God's people will call sin good and parade the sin of Sodom and not hide it, but applaud it. Well, these are signs, my friend, that the judgment of God has already begun to come. And, and, he, and he focuses his, on, on the women as well, doesn't he? In 3 verse 16. Why are the women haughty? Why are they walking out around with outstretched necks and flirting with their eyes and their mincing steps and their ornaments and their, and their tiaras and their perfume? What's that about? Well, these women are behaving like this because they want to just attract men. They're just looking to men for their security. If only they can get the right man, then life will be well with them. That's why they're dressed in this way and behave so flirtatiously, because they're leaning and depending on men. And who's just got breath? And yet God is clear in 14 to 15 that this judgment is coming because their leaders have just crushed the poor in their midst and got rich off them. And I shudder to think what will happen on the final day of judgment when prosperity preachers stand before God, having flown around the world in their jets and fleeced the poor people with false promises of uh, prosperity. This, these chapters are terrible chapters, sober chapters of judgment. And uh, by the time you get to 4 verse 2, and you hear the words, in that day, you're just stealing yourself. Oh no, there's more, there's, ter- there's, more, there's more to come, more judgment. But instead, you find incredibly mercy. As he finishes off this section with talking about the branch of the Lord. There will still be a future for Israel, for Judah, and for Jerusalem. There is hope. There's a message of survival beyond this judgment, of, of spiritual cleansing and and a future glory. Look at uh, 4 verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who recorded amongst among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. So this is an amazing section. The beginning and end is an amazing future vision of, of the glory of what uh, will be in Zion, the city of God. And in the midst is the horrendous reality of the situation and spiritual state that Isaiah was fi- facing in his day. So the question, how, how will it transition from the, this time where the people of God are, are, in, are enraptured to the world and, and full of injustice and uh, full of sin and shame? How does it go from being the unfaithful city to this glorious faithful city? How will this happen? When will it happen? And the answer is this, that it's already begun. It's already begun. So keep your finger in Isaiah and turn with me to John chapter 12.
John chapter 12, you find this on page 1080 in the church Bibles, 1080. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus, and then Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now that's a strange conversation, isn't it? But you see what prompts it? The Greeks, people from the nations, they want to see Jesus, and that triggers him to start talking about being glorified and about dying. Look at verse 27. Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So Jesus is talking about a point where God is going to be glorified as king and savior. Look at verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Verse 32. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. What Isaiah saw as the future has in major part been fulfilled. It is Jesus crucified and lifted up on a wooden cross in Jerusalem that causes the nations to flow to him and be saved. The branch of the Lord that will be glorious is picture language speaking of Christ Jesus. Glorified as the cross was lifted high. It is through this Lord Jesus that the filth of sin and is taken away and cleansed, that our guilt is removed. And uh, if you turn back to chapter 4 of Isaiah, it, it is by coming under the shelter of this king that we find a refuge in the judgment day, that we find a hiding place from the storm. So do you see that in these chapters, Isaiah gives us a vision of the future that is both optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. And it all depends on your response to the kingship of Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you today, how will you respond today? How will you respond? Which future vision will be the one that you will live in the light of? Is it the one where... um, Man has made his problems and man will sort out all his solutions and uh, will walk in our own light, thank you very much. Higher and higher to our own supposed glorious moment as man becomes the greatest thing in the universe. My friends, if that is the way you're living and you're living right now, let me warn you from God's word, you are heading to great judgment. 
There will be a day when you will have to wake up and see the splendor of the majesty of God and you will dread it. I must warn you with utmost seriousness today that that is the future of all the proud and all the arrogant who were just worshiping the idolatry of their own little fingers, of their own little lives. That is the reality of what is to come. But I believe that God has brought you here today because he wants, to hear, he wants you to hear these very words. Come to the Lord Jesus. Come to the branch of the Lord, the one who was lifted up in Jerusalem. He is still drawing men to himself, women to himself, boys and girls from all over the world who will come under his shelter, under his shade, who will receive his forgiveness for their idolatry and their sin. He's still gathering a people today. Come and walk in the light of the Lord. Stop trusting in man in whose just breath and trust in the one who was raised from the dead, never to die again. Come to him this day. What will you do today? How will you live this week? Well, my Christian friends, why are we so seduced by this world? Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Father, help us to walk in the light while we have the light. Please impress upon us your splendor and your majesty and your glory. Reveal to us in your word. Reveal to us supremely in Christ. Oh Lord, you've made a way that we may escape your judgment upon our sin. Lord, help us all to flee to Christ and to rely upon you alone. Lord, that we may be a people who come and hear and walk in your ways. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. We're going to close with opportunity to reflect and to respond with two songs. Man of Sorrows, what a name. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now